there is no way that I could make sense of the journey that I've taken if I go through it chronologically. Now, when I tell my story, I can weave a thread of logic through it 2020 hindsight in terms of, oh, I made this decision to get here and that decision to get there. And oh, when this happened, this is what I did. But trust me, there were many times I was out there in a boat with no oar and had no clue as to where shore was. Hey everyone, welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today, David Motley, is one of the three co-founding partners of a new venture fund based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Black Tech Nation Ventures. David's partnering with Kalani, a past guest on this program and founder of the Black Tech Nation community, and Sean Sebastian, a founding partner at Birchmere Ventures, which we've covered in past interviews with partners Sean Amirati and Ned Renzi. Black Tech Nation Ventures, as you might be able to guess from the name, is focused on investing in minority founders who have been historically disenfranchised from access to venture capital. But as David does a wonderful job in this interview explaining, this is not charity. This is through the lens of an underutilized resource, an underinvested asset with an enormous amount of potential. David brings decades of corporate experience, company building experience, and experience being a steward of capital. Just this January, he and a small team raised a $207 million SPAC to take a large private fintech firm public. He has spent a decade investing in the Blue Tree Venture Fund and has a collection of other highly relevant experiences, including board seats on Fortune 500 public companies. I only had David for an hour, so I tried to extract as much so I tried to extract as much wisdom as I possibly could during my time with him, and he definitely delivered the goods. I am so excited for you to listen to this interview. Here is David Motley. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to be speaking with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. And again, my compliments on what you've created with your podcast. Thank you. It is a very exciting time for all sorts of reasons. People are getting vaccinated. The weather's getting warmer. And for someone like me, who's very attuned to the goings-on associated with the, the Pittsburgh startup scene in general, but just you know, startups, technology companies, all that kind of stuff. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine, Kalani, uh, I saw her face plastered across these announcements in the Pittsburgh Business Times, then in TechCrunch, the announcement of Black Tech Nation Ventures. And uh, I saw that there were two partners in this endeavor, you being one of them. So I had to reach out to find out a little bit more about who you are and how you came together. And maybe, you know, in conjunction with that, tell people a little bit about the mission and the vision behind Black Tech Nation Ventures. Absolutely. Happy to share that story and um, was flattered that you called. So uh, how did you guys get hooked up? And, and can you tell us a little bit about the, the kind of vision for the fund that you guys are raising? Absolutely. Let's start with how we got connected. And that started with a phone call from Sean Sebastian. And literally, Sean said, David, I want you to call this young lady named Kalani Jasmine. And I'd like for you to call me back after you've spoken to her. I've known Sean for 25 years. He's never asked me to do that. And so I gave Kalani a call. I was completely blown away by this summa cum laude graduate of pre-med from Howard University and her energy and her intellect and what she'd already created that was quite special with Black Tech Nation, uh, the community side and the aspiration that she had for creating a venture fund. And I called John back and I said, wow, she can play. I mean, she's the real deal. Love to be involved and to try and be relevant for what the two of you are trying to create. And so the, the role that you can play here and, and to, to put into context for people, 
these announcements came as what I would imagine is something of a, you know, a planned launch campaign to get the word out because you were in a fundraising mode. There's an aspiration here to raise capital that can be deployed. Where is that intended to be deployed? Absolutely. And so moving beyond how did I come to meet uh, Kalani and get connected to um, this particular opportunity, um, the fund itself, Black Tech Nation Ventures, is a Black majority-owned venture fund based in Pittsburgh that will be investing in founding teams that have significant Black and diverse uh, representation in both their founding team members and their executive teams. We'll have a focus on Pittsburgh, but have a national reach, and we'll be looking for companies that um, have the potential to achieve significant scale and value um, and be the type of companies that either strategic acquirers would um, acquire or potentially a company that is strong enough that might have an, an opportunity to actually go public. Um, the, the fund itself was launched back in the December timeframe in terms of beginning to talk to potential investors. Uh, we came out of our quiet period about two weeks ago with the article that was published in the Pittsburgh Business Times. Uh, we were really excited, blown away by the reception uh, that that article received. And that was followed very quickly on by the article you referenced in TechCrunch, which gave us another um, just avalanche of inbounds, uh, both with respect to companies looking at us as potential source of funding, as well as um, LPs um, inquiring about the opportunity to invest. And so that's the that's the platform that we're creating that we think is, is really going to be not only a transformational platform for Pittsburgh, but also something that we think is going to have an effect at the national level. And Kalani has been a past guest on this show, kind of in the nascent stages of, of developing Black Tech Nation as a community. And it's evident to anyone paying attention that she's going to have that capacity to bring in those type of companies that have, you know, otherwise sometimes been overlooked by other uh, traditional venture firms. And, you know, really at, at the core, we talk about like the engines that drive any business. One of those engines is your deal flow, your capacity to get into those great deals, to source them, to even have them come across your desk with the limited time that we're all given on a daily basis. But the other side of that is also being able to raise the requisite funds via LPs to deploy into that use case. And that's something that I would imagine, you know, Sean has also, you know, been a co-founder of Birchmere Ventures, has his ex own experience doing that, but you have as well via the Blue Tree Venture Fund. So can you talk a little bit about what you've been doing there over the last couple of years and how that will apply to BTVN? Absolutely. Happy, happy to share that. And Aaron, you hit on it. There's a couple of core competencies that any successful venture fund has to have. The first is you have to be able to raise money. So um, getting that bolus of capital that you're um, now um, responsible for deploying is step number one. Step number two is sourcing deals, being able to find um, companies that have some type of distinct competitive advantage um, that are going to be able to both deliver significant value and capture significant value um, in the marketplace. And in between those two, raising the money and designing your portfolio, there needs to be a skill set requisite uh, within the um, general partnership to be able to determine which of the numerous companies that are going to come on your radar are going to be that select few that you actually choose to invest in. And then after you've built out your portfolio, the, the final step in this is helping those companies that you've chosen to invest in to actually move from concept to commercialization to exit. And um, those skill sets are in combination. Raising the money, building the portfolio, managing that portfolio to exit is a journey that um, venture capital funds are on. And then with respect to how that ties into Blue Tree Venture Fund, in my experience there, I had the privilege of being invited to join Catherine Mott's launching of the Blue Tree Venture Fund, which was built on the platform that she had created in the establishment of the Blue Tree Allied Angel. And almost eight years ago now, we launched the Blue Tree Venture Fund, raised money, built a portfolio of companies. We now have 18 portfolio companies. Um, and that portfolio is split 50-50 between life science and IT. And we are in this process of now managing um, those companies to exit. So we're in the latter stages of the, um, the life of the Blue Tree Venture Fund. 
One important distinction, given all the parallels between Blue Tree Venture Fund and the um, Black Tech Nation Venture Fund, one of the distinction is that the Black Tech Nation Venture Fund is going to be very intentional with respect to driving um, our portfolio towards being built around founding teams that have black and diverse team member representation. Um, and so that's, uh, that's a dimension to it that Sean speaks to really well when he talks about what happened for him in Birchmere Ventures, where without intentionally going out and seeking diverse founding teams and founding teams that have black members, he's found that over the almost 100 companies that he's invested in across the Birchmere family of funds that he has found significant numbers of those, a meaningful number of those portfolio companies that did have, in fact, diverse founding teams. And one of the things I love, it's not our words, but it's the words of one of our LPs that we're hopefully going to land has said is that when they look at diversity, they don't look at it as something that's quote unquote complicated with this notion of doing the right thing or the, the, the charity aspect of trying to help, um, but rather they look at it as an asset class, an undermined asset class that has the ability to deliver outsized returns because it's not where everyone else is fishing. And we're looking at it the same way. Um, at the end of the day, the Black Tech Nation Ventures Fund is going to deliver superior returns um, to our investors with an eye towards earning the right to not just be a one and done fund, but to earn the right to launch Black Tech Nation Ventures Fund too. Right on. Yeah. The the business of, of venture is being able to raise those subsequent funds and kind of continue to, to pour investment capital into your thesis. But that you got exactly where I wanted to in this conversation, David, which was the notion that, and I was, I was actually just listening to uh, a podcast where Bill Gurley, a famous uh, venture investor, invested in Uber uh, on the on the board for Benchmark, and he was talking about how there's this famous letter that Jeff Bezos wrote in the early days of Amazon, saying, "You know, I need you to think about our company a little bit differently. If you're investing in us, we're not going to turn a profit right away. We are going to be pumping that money back into the business." And for for years, they were maligned because a certain type of investor was saying, "You know, they don't spit off." capital like Walmart does. And what do you know these days? I don't know exactly what uh, Walmart's market cap is, but it's not as big as Amazon's because (laughs) of that story that they were able to tell. And the point that Gurley made, which I think was really, really enlightening was some people misinterpret what he was doing in that letter as saying, I'm just going to do it my way. Like, like just because, and he goes, you know, actually what he was saying was, you know, before he started Amazon, Bezos worked in a hedge fund on Wall Street. He spoke the language of these large institutional investors and was able to put it in those terms so that they would understand what they were investing in and how it still aligned with their initiatives. Because exactly like you're saying, there is a place in people's lives if they want to do something charitable or for a cause or other things like that. But this is still the business of investing and the the capital allocators that you might be speaking to, their whole career risk is predicated on, are they driving returns? That's and right. So can, can you maybe just expand on that a little bit more of, you know, a, as you're going through these pitches, how that part of the kind of equation is being positioned to people? Because like you said, it's, it's an under-realized and underutilized asset that you guys are going to have at the inside track to. Aaron, you're, you're spot on. Um, if people want to give $50 million to charity, they're not going to give it to Black Tech Nation Ventures, right? Our story is not one around um, telling our LPs that you know, this is an opportunity for them to quote unquote, do good. The message that we say perhaps most succinctly when we're talking to our LPs is that Black Tech Nation Ventures is going to be about profits and purpose without compromise. Profits and purpose without compromise. And so we're taking the, the purpose side of the equation that Kalani has built masterfully with what she's done with Black Tech Nations, which is a community oriented um, organization that basically creates a homeroom for Black and other diverse techies to come together and get that nurturing, that that opportunity to talk to like-minded people, share knowledge and networks with 
the profit side of the equation, which comes from bringing Sean and myself into the mix to create Black Technician Ventures. Um, Sean comes in with the incredible track record of success with Birchmere Ventures, um, perhaps one of the highest performing uh, venture funds in Pittsburgh. And I come to it with 30 years of corporate experience and 12 years now of entrepreneurial experience, having left corporate back in 2008, 2009, <clears throat> both in venture and other areas, as well as having launched um, an initiative called the African-American Directors Forum, which over the last five years has created a spider web of connectivity with a very, very successful group of African-Americans, a lot of whom serve on the boards of publicly traded companies, um, and now a growing number who are involved in portfolio company service for venture funds, and bringing access to that, that community and the knowledge and network um, that comes from that, all being available now to Black Tech Nation Ventures. So what does that meant um, for us on, on two fronts, both with respect to de-risking the launching of a new fund bolting Birchmere Venture and Sean Sebastian's experience onto Black Tech Nation moves us from how we would typically be regarded by institutional investors as a first-time fund, <clears throat> first-time team, and all the uncertainty that comes along with that <clears throat> to a been there, done that firm with a track record because we have access to the backroom operations that made Birchmere so successful. We have access to the incredible knowledge and expertise, uh, the pattern recognition, the reason judgment that Sean brings. And along with the access that my network of contacts brings in to change the trajectory that our fund has had. And it's most strongly conveyed by what's happened for us from December through present. We've been able to basically navigate very efficiently through the gatekeepers at some of the best known um, brands in the country that are investing in funds like ours. And so it'd be premature to share names, but if you were to look, take a look at the Fortune 50 companies, and in particular Fortune uh, 20 financial institutions, um, we're in the C-suites of several of those entities having very late stage conversations about our fund. And we're, we're optimistic that we're gonna get a couple of them to yes. Um, we've also been able to attract a um, compelling uh, number of African-American LPs to the fund, which is another part of our, our script for success is that we wanna have African-American diverse driven all the way through our operating model. So not just investing in founding teams that have significant representation, but also attracting capital from a diverse set of LPs. I'm also building out a team of people around Kalani, young uh, people that reflect black diverse backgrounds um, so that Sean and I as the, the older folks here um, can move off onto the sidelines and um, really um, both question and challenge and cheer and encourage um, the new younger set of people that come into the fund that will be our fund managers and our financial um, support staff that'll be complementing Kalani as the, the next generation of, um, of venture capitalists in, in Pittsburgh. So we're, we're really excited about the totality of the story, not just building out the portfolio of companies, but also building out that competency within Black Tech Nation Ventures to make it something that's really significant on the Pittsburgh landscape. And if we are successful, this is going to be something that's going to be significant on the national landscape because it proves the, the viability of the model and you know, just more capital coming into these type of spaces has, has, has such an amount of potential leverage across the board. And that's, that's the next thing I wanted to kind of latch onto here because if anyone has been listening intently so far through our conversation, hard not to get excited about what you guys are doing, hard not to really appreciate the amount of thought and complexity that goes into getting something like this off the ground. But the other thing that we always do on this show, David, is try to make legible, particularly for the young folks that listen to something like this. I, I told you in the, the pre-call, you know, I, I make this show for like the 20-year-old version of myself who's coming in with all the energy, all the ambition, all the aspiration, and candidly, almost none of the seasoning, none of the experience <laughs> necessary to even know which door to knock, know which move applies when and where. And so if you if you'd allow me to, to kind of 
work with you to unpack some of the preceding steps that make this possible. You talked about 30 years in business. You talked about time, both in the corporate uh, world and leaving for something more entrepreneurial. I think an interesting start might be that step out of corporate America into the entrepreneurial landscape. But if there's another kind of entry point that you think would be helpful for folks to know where the seasoning, where the connections start to come from to make something like BTVN possible. I'll give you two answers to that because there's, there's, you, you've asked several questions within that yeah. one question. So yeah, I'm sorry. Um, no, that, that's fine. So the connections to create something like BTNV, absolutely happy to answer that question. You also asked the question around stepping out of corporate to head into what became kind of my encore, which was the entrepreneurial chapter of my career. Um, and then the other thing that you've talked about is um, kind of knowing what you don't know and the liability that comes along with that as well as the asset that comes along with that. Um, and I, I might take that first. Yeah. If I take a look at my journey, Lincoln Larmer and public schools to where I am today, there is no way that I could make sense of the journey that I've taken if I go through it chronologically. Now, when I tell my story, I can weave a thread of logic through it 2020 hindsight in terms of, oh, I made this decision to get here and that decision to get there. And oh, when this happened, this is what I did. But trust me, there were many times I was out there in a boat with no oar and had no clue as to where shore was, right? So that's the, that's the reality of the, the journey as it played out. But we all have the, the benefit of being able to build a resume around what went right and edit out all the things that, that went wrong. So if you wanna have a four hour conversation instead of a one hour conversation, we can talk about the part of the, the story that's not on my resume. And then coming back to my stepping out of corporate, um, I perhaps would best describe my corporate experience as a phenomenal one. It absolutely positioned me to achieve the things that I've achieved afterwards. So minus the 20 years I had spent with PPG, I would not be doing the things that I'm doing today. In PPG, I learned strategy. In PPG, I learned real estate development. In PPG, I learned how to deal with um, easy to contend with people and difficult to contend with people. All that said, another lens on my career at PPG is that I hit the glass ceiling. Um, I hit the glass ceiling probably in year 10 uh, with PPG and spent the next 10 years in lateral moves within the company. And the decision for me was one of either stay there and try and play that hand out. And who knows how it might've turned out. Maybe I might've found the end around that allowed me to get to the next level within the company, or I could take my ball and try and play somewhere else. And so I made that decision and, and left corporate after 20 years and went to my first startup that was a, a meteoric rise and fall. Um, it was a great experience to be on the other side of the table now that I'm in venture. I know what it feels like to put your heart and soul in something and have it not work out. Unfortunately, um, I had married well and my wife had patience and she gave me a couple more shots on goal. And I was able to bounce back into corporate. Fortunately, ended up with a company called Respironics that had just a phenomenal five-year meteoric rise. I caught the last five years of their being independent before they were acquired by Philips. But that also gave me direct experience in running a venture fund. Um, corporate venture fund as opposed to private, but that was my first real exposure to being on the investing side of venture. And so that's the experience for me that moved me from corporate to entrepreneurship. And after Respironics was acquired by Philips, that gave me a little more flexibility financially to be able to try and put my own shingle up and over the, the last 12 years, I've been able to build out a portfolio of activities that extend across venture capital, real estate development, private company, public company board service, and a host of nonprofit things. And so that's answer to question number two. And then what, what are the requisites that um, are required to make something like the Black Tech Nation Ventures work? It's, it's interesting. If you take a look at the new funds that were created during uh, 2020, and maybe even a year or two earlier, there have been a number of funds that have people that are a lot younger than Sean and I, um, people that are in their late 20s, early 30s, who are coming at this with proven track records of high performance, 
but limited track records in terms of running a fund. And fortunately, there are enough resources out there and enough um, institutions out there that are willing to put in place the, the guardrails and road signs and the scaffolding and support structures to help them get through that front end of the learning curve. Um, but the first thing I would say is that you really absolutely need to have a particular functional area that's your long suit, that you can clearly communicate that you're a high performer. And so for, for me, that was strategy. That was the functional area that I think I would say that is my more than. And for other people, it might be something else. It might be finance. You know, it might be it might be marketing. It, it could be some other functional area. The other thing is you, you have to find some way to connect yourself to money. And unless you're independently wealthy, having that network that allows you to access people who have money that they can deploy is a, another critical ingredient. And the last thing, it kind of comes back to this idea that you had around, you know, when you're young and you don't know, I would offer you that sometimes not knowing is a huge asset. There are many things that have worked out for me that if I had known what it was going to be like on the front end before I jumped into that cold pool of water, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way I would have said yes to it. So sometimes just not being aware all the things that cause people that have experience to say, no, I'm not going to do that is what allows young, um, energetic, capable people to do things that are completely um, beyond what other people would have thought possible. I, I love the, um, the expression that says, um, if, if you are going to look for reasons in the past to justify what you do in the future, you will only do what you've done, right? And if you think about the space that we're playing in as venture capitalists, where you're really trying to identify opportunities to invest in things that are transformational, that are disruptive, that are going to not drive incremental value, but dramatic shifts in value and changes in, in, in um, business and the way people do it, you need to have an irrational person, you know, who's really come in and thrown history to the sidelines and has a vision for something that heretofore would have been considered impossible. And so as I, as I hear that, and I think that's a really helpful story to be told, I want to kind of expose the, the model that I have that I would, you know, either say for myself or give to a fellow young person, which is that specialist. And in your case, you said it was the strategy thing, but it could be marketing, could be finance, could be whatever, is your first kind of totem in the professional world to signal to others, hey, I'm useful. And if you're good at it, I'm really useful. And that can start the kind of uh, either acceleration and compensation or that acceleration into preferable teams, you know, uh, the, the, the better firm versus the worst firm, what have you. But then, you know, when, when I see where you've landed now, and we're talking about raising these venture funds, sitting on the boards of everything from, you know, a large publicly traded financial services firm to, you know, a biotech companies that we've interviewed in the past, Alung, Forest Devices, and the, you know, the fantastic teams that, that we've spoken to there, it reads, and then not even speaking yet to the nonprofit work or the real estate development, it reads to me like a generalist. And I think that there's also a general impatience to get to that state of generalism, that to get that state of I'm stirring eight different drinks and I'm, you know, taking a taste of everything. When in reality, it was that period of specialization that was, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that kind of pivot or, or opportunity point that cracked the door open to that next level. You're, you're absolutely right. If you look at what I'm doing now, and I get this question a lot when people see the breadth of what I'm involved in. It's like, so how do you keep your arms around all that stuff? Um, secondly, how do you keep informed um, to be able to make meaningful contributions to the conversations across, as you said, if you take a look at the industries that I'm involved in, it's a pretty broad slate of industries. If you look at the company circumstances that I'm involved in, it's everything from the long established industries that are decades in the making to companies are involved in creating new marketplaces um, and from material sciences to financial services to life sciences. So it's, it is a, a breadth of things. And to me, what happens is there is a scaffolding that one acquires that creates transferable skills. And so for me, for instance, strategy, it's, it's almost like Latin, you know, it's, it's a root language, you know, that, 
once you develop a competency in driving strategy, you can take that skill set and port it over to another industry and apply it. And you can't make assumptions that everything's going to be the same, but it's going to position you in a place that you can question and challenge um, and contribute to conversations, even if you don't have domain expertise. I think the same thing is true with other functional areas, marketing. And one of the things that we didn't talk about that I also would say is portable is passion. And one of the things that you can have as a young person that doesn't require years of experience in corporate is your personal journey can have created a passion within you for some particular thing. Um, we were talking to a, a 21 year old um, who very, very, very early on in their life developed a passion for a particular domain. And from 14 years old through 21, they spent a large part of their waking hour thinking about this particular area. And when you talk to them, you can just feel that this is not some passing fancy. And it doesn't mean this is this person's life work, but for the moment, they are all in. I mean, they are 100% invested in trying to be relevant for this space. In life sciences, you hear that a lot. Someone's significant other sibling, family member contracted some disease, and they get completely focused on that particular issue and become relevant for it in a way that other people who've spent a career in a lukewarm circumstance and relationship with that issue has never been. And because of that passion they bring to it, they're able to do and accomplish things that the people that are just along for the ride can't. And so, you know, I would, I would absolutely want to make sure that we talk about what are the, what are the differentiators? What are the unfair competitive advantages that you can bring to an opportunity beyond just functional expertise? And you can bring a unique connection to that particular opportunity or problem that other people don't have. Totally agree. And I think if people want a taste of that type of uh, passion, I think Matt Kessinger at uh, Forest Devices epitomizes That's that. Great example. Blown away from that energy uh, when we covered him on a past episode. I have the privilege of serving on Matt's board and have been working with Matt and the team that he's built for wow, four plus years now. And I can still remember when Matt was just beginning to build out his board. Um, and he called me, um, networking into me through a, a mutual um, acquaintance. And at that point, I really was not thinking about joining another board, in particular, another early stage company board. Um, I, I didn't have time for it. And I talked to Matt and his energy was just captivating. And I got too close to his gravitational pull <laughs> and um, just got brought in and it was one of the, you know, best things that's that's happened in terms of one getting to Matt personally uh, you will not meet many people like Matt and then two what he's creating with force devices he's creating something that's really special and I think it's going to make a difference for a lot of people who have um, not had the benefit of the technology that he's bringing forward in the stroke detection world yeah and I've just found you know, when I get find other people like that, I just want to spend more time around them, even though I, I'm a pretty passionate dude. But if I can get around the other passionate people and that, you know, you're, you're, you're vibing off that same energy, it, it tends to, to transfer into the rest of your it's, work. But, you know, we talk about how busy you are. Yeah, Go it's ahead. contagious. It's contagious. That, that's why I call it a gravitational pull. I mean, it is absolutely contagious. And you're either going to find yourself, I think, in life with yourself navigating virtuous cycles or vicious cycles, right? And to the extent that you can find your way into as many virtuous cycles as you can, as many positive influencers um, as you can, um, it's, it's, it's absolutely what will lead you on a journey that allows you to realize your, your full potential, that connecting yourself to other, connecting the dots between yourself and other people that can shape the line that becomes your journey. And one of the things that um, I, I would share is that we spend a lot of time, hopefully this doesn't sound too paternal, um, but we tell our, our children who are 27 and 28 that at this stage in your life, you are not choosing what to do. You are trying things to do, right? Because it's, it's just way too early to think that you're going to happen across the thing you're going to do for the next 30 years. So don't put the weightiness on it that sometimes comes when you're just graduating from college or you're leaving your first job to try your second job. You know, odds are you're probably going to make many stops 
along the way. And some of them are going to work out and some of them aren't. And the net sum of that journey um, is highly likely to be positive as long as you're willing to get up one more time than you fall down. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. Absolutely. And you don't need to apologize for anything being being paternal. I have a a group of guys that I meet with every uh, two weeks, and, and it's mostly conversations about how to be better men and and this acknowledgement that there is a a deep yearning in the world for the healthy expression of, of masculinity as you're saying that that kind of paternal energy is needed in, in so many different forms and and you know any any time that we can share some of that here on this platform that's what we're all about but I have another question here and it, it, we're kind of you know uh, going in a different direction yet again but this is one of the few instances where I actually get to speak to someone who is in the midst of this SPAC frenzy that, that, that markets seem to be gripped by. So to, to kind of change directions again, in conjunction with raising the capital for the VC fund, all these other different hats that you're wearing, you also announced a, I believe it was a $210 million SPAC. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it's a blank check company. It's been a, a, a form that has existed for a while, but has really picked up in its popularity in the the instances of these types of reverse merger vehicles for taking companies public. And so maybe you can just start off, you know, adding a little bit more color to my description of this type of investment vehicle and the role that you're playing specifically in the SPAC. Absolutely. And so SPACs are, in fact, the the new darling, I think, of the investment community. Um, But um, in the last 12 months, um, it is definitely move from something that was um, off center and not part of a lot of conversations where you'd say you're involved in the SPAC and people would say, what's that? Um, to, to now, um, most people who are involved in investments of any sort have heard of SPACs and, and know what the acronym stands for and understand the basic business model. But in essence, it's flipping the sequence that typically happens on a company's journey um, from being private to public. And typically, the traditional journey is you first build out a company that generates a strong revenue and profit story, or even if it doesn't have a revenue and profit performance, it has a strong uh, trajectory towards a story that says it's going to eventually deliver a lot of revenue and profits. And on that strength of that story, that company is able to go public. So a SPAC changes the sequence and a group of what are referred to as sponsors who have a track record of success, go to the marketplace with a concept, an investment thesis. Um, And in the case of our SPAC, we went to the market with an investment thesis that said that our sponsorship team, which comprises a lot of people with decades of experience in the e-commerce FinTech space, has the wherewithal to be able to provide both capital and knowledge and network to accelerate the performance of a company in the, what we refer to as the e-commerce enabling FinTech space. And so on the strength of that sponsorship team and the investment theses that you have, you go out to the public markets. And in our case, there were six people on our team, three sponsors and three board members. And we took that story. It's just a little longer than what I just shared with you to the public markets and said, okay, we want $200 million. Actually, we asked for $150 million and we were oversubscribed and we capped off at $207 actually million that we raised in January um, against a billion and a half dollars of interest. So we were completely oversubscribed um, with the story that our SPAC Deep Lake um, Capital took to the marketplace. And so we're now taking that bolus of capital and we're in the market looking for a company to combine both the the intellectual knowledge that comes along with our sponsorship team with the capital that we raise from the public markets with what's referred to as a target um, company. And so we're in the process of looking um, for that target now. And once you've identified that target, you now combine that target with the capital that you've raised in your sponsorship team and it's called a business combination. And that company, which heretofore had been private, 
becomes public by combining with the SPAC that you've created. And so that's why I mean when I say the sequences change, you go public first and then find the company as opposed to building the company and then taking it public. And so we're really excited. I, I was really privileged. Um, Mark Lavelle um, invited me to join the team that he put together to do this and um, definitely a privilege. And, and by the reception that we received in the marketplace in January, uh, we, we think that we will not only be able to achieve our, our first back, but we, we think that we're going to be able to develop a brand around being relevant for the, the fintech space. Right on. And so I'd, I'd love to maybe just put a little bit more clarity on, on this image for people of why SPACs versus these other options, because people are very familiar or relatively familiar with the IPO idea that's, you know, ringing, ringing the bell and all that, um, you know, kind of uh, well-worn if you're in the kind of startup circle space. And we've seen certain companies now uh, choose instead of an IPO, a direct listing. And the basic idea is we've raised enough money from private markets that we don't need this public offering to be a capital raising opportunity. We just want to change from that private to uh, public status and grant liquidity to our early employees, our early investors, and, and the other kind of benefits from being publicly traded in the you know, significance and, and credibility that that conveys onto a, uh, a, a company. My read, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, is number one, one of the benefits of the SPAC is that there is a, a, a quicker pace and speed to the public markets relative to the IPO process. Uh, potentially, I could be wrong here, maybe less legal fees, less banker fees as they're going out and taking you on the roadshow. And then also an, an ability to know in advance what you are raising. Because the IPO process is really, you're going on this roadshow one, two, three weeks. And however much these institutional investors that you're brought in front of decide or come to believe that your shares are worth will decide how much capital that you're raising versus the SPAC. It's known, you said $207 million. That's what we've got. That's what will be injected onto the company balance sheet there's other ways to increase that number potentially, but it's it's somewhat more tightly defined. Is that really the, the main decision points? Am I missing anything? Can you help me just understand that better? You've, you've captured the essence of what I'd call the, the big rocks is to put into the jar of understanding um, what a SPAC is about. But at the end of the day, a company is looking for a couple of things when they decide to go to the next level. Um, one is capital um, and figuring out what the most efficient and the shortest timeline to get to capital is one consideration. Um, the, the other thing that companies will look for as they try and go to the next level is the, the leadership, the expertise, um, what happens at the top of the pyramid of the company. Um, and, and that's a, another enabler for a company that goes beyond the financial capital, but the intellectual capital that you can bring in uh, to a company. And then, the third thing that's kind of baked into both of those is, is time. You know, time is your enemy on all these. And um, to the extent that you can access that financial capital and the intellectual capital in as efficient uh, manner possible in a shorter time frame possible, um, the better off you are. And so when you take a look at the different options, and there's a plethora of options of accessing capital, but maybe kind of a couple of major um, points on that football field, goalposts on either end, uh, might be that one, you would access capital from private sources. So private equity is always an option um, to, to access money. Um, and then as you head to the other end of the, the football field, which is the private sector, um, going, I'm sorry, the public sector, uh, going public um, is another way to get there. It is probably going to be more complicated, more time-bounded, more bureaucratic, um, to get through all the, the regulatory requirements to go public. And a company that's performing really, really well in a private setting is going to have to put on belts and suspenders, dot the I's and cross the T's to be able to, to withstand the um, physical examination that you're going to get um, that is required to become kind of game ready um, to be um, in the public markets. And so the SPAC is perhaps one step closer to the efficiency that you might gain on the private side, but it allows you to get to a public offering faster. And so what the reason that people would choose a SPAC 
over a um, public offering is that one, when you take this without uh, getting into all the details, um, the, the cost that a company will bear going public through a SPAC and the dilution that they'll likely, not guarantee, but they'll likely incur in going public through a SPAC is lower. Um, the timeline to make that decision that you want to go from private to public is likely shorter. The management distraction that you're going to incur and going public via SPAC versus going public on your own and the roadshow that's going to take three to six to however many months it takes and your management team's eye being taken off of running the business to now telling your story to all the financial institutions um, that have to get to yes for you to feel comfortable that you're gonna have accessible um, IPO is completely different. So in a SPAC, that roadshow was done by the SPAC. So they went through all those conversations with the institutional investors. Um, I remember that journey quite well um, for, for us back in the, the January um, timeframe. Um, and if you think about that when you're focused on the SPAC versus if you think about that and you're not only trying to raise the money, but you're also trying to run the company, which here before you decided you want to go public, that was already more than a full-time job, right? So now you're going to layer on top of that. Okay, now I've got to manage all these iBankers and potential investors. And so that's another major positive. So net-net, those are the kind of the major differences and the reasons why one would choose one over the other. The last thing I would say is that um, quite often in a conversation with a SPAC, you can enjoy some of the same autonomy and ability to put your fingerprints on what's going to happen on the other side of accessing the public markets because you're in almost like a dating um, dynamic with the SPAC towards getting to, yes, okay, this is the SPAC that I want to do a business combination with. And if for some reason there's something that doesn't work for you in terms of the people or the approach or the philosophy on what happens next, you just you know, agree to disagree and you move on. Right on. That's really, really edifying. Thank you uh, for taking me through all that. And thank you for giving so much of your time to, to be on the show today. Uh, before we wrap up and ask our standard last two questions, David, I want to make sure if there's anything else you want to share generally or specifically about Black Tech Nation Ventures uh, that I didn't give you a chance to, to do that before we wrap up. The thing that I would say is that I, I mentioned passion um, as one of the things that a young person can bring. And when I look at Kalani and the energy that she brings to this profits and purpose driven um, entity that we're creating. It takes a really special person um, to come into a city like Pittsburgh as an African-American female and look around and say, there's no one in the space that I'm in who looks like me. And instead of deciding to take her ball and go home, and go to Atlanta or DC or some other place where potentially it might be a, an easier lift to quote unquote fit in. She decided she was gonna put down her, her tent and she was gonna change Pittsburgh. That's a big bodacious goal that um, not a lot of people get to yes on. I look at my partner, uh, Sean Sebastian, um, Sean, um, made a decision as a lot of us looked at 2020 and said, how can I be relevant for this moment in history? And Sean made a decision that he could take that incredible track record that he's built with Birchmere Ventures and bring that to bear in a, meaning, a really meaningful way for doing something that's going to make a difference. I think it's going to make a difference for our region uh, with respect to access for capital for um, African-Americans and diverse folks who otherwise would have um, had um, a challenge accessing capital. Um, it's gonna make a difference for the people that get um, recruited into the firm to run the firm in terms of changing um, their access to um, a new industry that for uh, a long time has been closed to people of color and um, underrepresented groups. So uh, I look at all those things coming together and uh, would, want to make sure that as people look at the 
the Black Tech Nation venture story that beyond what we specifically are going to do that hopefully will cause other people to look you know, at this opportunity slash challenge and think through how can they be relevant for making a difference. Right on. Well, we'll be rooting for you. Uh, if folks want to follow along, learn more, uh, connect with both uh, Black Tech Nation Ventures and you in the digital world, David, what coordinates can we point them towards? We've got this really cool website designed by Kalani herself. We're going to have a little thing on the side that says designed by Kalani. Um, it's pretty cool. It's, and the website um, is btn.vc. So blacktechnation.vc. Check us out. We'd love to hear from you. Right on. Uh, we're going to link that in the show notes. I uh, hope that people will check that out. Uh, available in the app where you're probably listening to this or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. Uh, but before I let you go, David, I want to give you the mic one final time to <clears throat> issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. So my challenge would be to the young people who are listening. Um, I think that the biggest mistake that can be made by a young person is to undershoot their aspirations. And um, at, at the earliest of early ages, we've, we've tried to impart upon everybody that we talk to that it all starts with establishing some goal. It doesn't have to be the goal. Don't set the bar so high that you think at 21, 25, whatever the age is, 18, that you have to have this goal that is going to take you all the way to being old like me. Um, but uh, establish a goal that takes you to the next inflection point. And it was said so, so well by um, a colleague of mine, um, Claire Bobbin of Fontenot. And she said when she was in high school, she spent a lot of time thinking about what she wanted to do in college. And that set her journey for that chapter in her life. And when she was in college, she spent a lot of time thinking about what she wanted to do when she graduated from college. And that became the, the true north for her. And when she graduated from college and she was in that first chapter, she was always thinking through what's next? What's the next goal, the next major milestone for me in my journey? And you know, now that you know, she's pretty far along in her career, and I would say this is part of my refresh as an old person, um, at this sobering age of 60 plus, you know, I'm, I'm still in that same gear. I'm thinking through, okay, what's next? And so that's, that's the question I would, I would love to leave everyone uh, that's listening to this is to, to be continually asking yourself, challenging yourself, what's next? Amen. That's a beautiful note to wrap up on, David. Thank you so much for the challenge and for sharing so much of your time with me today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Continued success to you. Thank you. We just went deep. David Motley, hope you're not there, has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with David Motley. In the show notes to this episode, I will be linking some of those past guests that we referenced. Kalani and her entree into Black Tech Nation, Ned Renzi investing via Birchmere Ventures, and a whole collection of other relevant folks in the back catalog of this show. As always, reach out to me at AaronWatson59 on Twitter for a personal recommendation, and we will catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.